0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is expanding the list of Delta hotspots and accelerating the timeline for second vaccine doses. Hamilton is one of those Delta hotspots. What's it mean for us? Well, we'll talk about that. AstraZeneca is not good enough for the USA. When the border reopens, Canadians who got that shot will not be allowed in seats for the Springsteen on Broadway show. Could this be the beginning of bureaucratic vaccine woes? And Doug Ford pledged a year ago to make air conditioning mandatory in every nursing home, including residents' bedrooms. But his government just awarded construction contracts to new facilities, and they don't include cooling systems throughout the building. Why haven't they updated the LTC standards? We're going to talk about that as well. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML some new news about vaccines and about the vaccine rollout that's going on. Uh, More Ontarians are going to be able to get their second dose a lot sooner. Ontario is expanding the list of Delta hotspots to target the vaccines. Global's Brianna Carnegie has some details for us.
1: Hamilton, Simcoe, Muskoka, and Durham have now been added to the list of Delta hotspots. Eligible residents in those areas can start booking their second dose as of Wednesday, while bookings open up Monday for Ontario residents who received a first
0: dose before May 9th. That's a month ahead of schedule. Vaccines work. They are safe and effective. They will help end the pandemic.
1: Health Minister Christine Elliott also outlined a gradual acceleration for all adults starting June 28th. Children and youth will be able to get their shots ahead of schedule as well, with an exact date yet to be
0: determined. COVID-19 variants are still a concern, and it's critical that everyone sign up to receive your second dose sooner when it's your turn. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So what are the implications and uh, how soon can we get this now that Hamlin's a hot spot? London still is not and there were some concerns about that but we'll get to those in a few minutes. Joining us to talk about all of this and of course some news about AstraZeneca is uh, Dr. Barry Peck, who's a public health prevention medicine specialist and a professor at the Dalai Lani School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, so good you could join us. Thank you so much for the time today.
1: Good morning, thank you.
0: Let's, let's talk maybe first of all about the AstraZeneca situation then I'm going to roll back to the hot spot spot situation here uh a lot of confusion about this I've, I've got a lot of complaints and emails i see tons of things going on in social media how come they keep changing their minds about this and you know am i safe because i've had two astrazeneca's uh give me your perspective on what's happened and, and and how confident people should feel if they had the az vaccine
1: so you know i think re- people should really feel very confident just about their they're getting the right information as it emerges so you know it is certainly confusing it may even be contributing to some hesitancy but you know, the reality is, uh, you know, your first question was, why, is, why are things changing? And, and the answer is because data is emerging and it's being shared as quickly as it's emerging. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that if you get the mRNA vaccine after the AstraZeneca vaccine, not only is it safe, which we've known for quite some time, but there's a good indication that it is is better. It provides more protection, and and the critical important difference here is that it, it provides better protection against the Delta variant, which is the one we're going to talk about in a moment that Hamilton is now uh, a hot spot for. So, you know, that's the critically important thing. I think it's 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 clear now what people need to do. People who got AstraZeneca, if they want to get that second dose of AstraZeneca, they can, but they probably should go out and get a second dose of an mRNA vaccine as soon as they can.
0: There's some criticism of Dr. Tam, who made the announcement, and of course, uh, medical officers of health right across the province right now, but I, I want to put that in context, if we could, it, it, because it's been characterized, doctor, that they're changing their minds all the time, and uh, a family friend of mine, a doctor, explained to me last evening, he said the AstraZeneca, and all of them for that matter, were developed under the guise of the first COVID-19 pandemic. He says, we've had a, a variant, and now an even more dangerous variant. It only makes sense, they say, that you've got to reassess exactly how effective these are going to be against now, as you mentioned, the the Delta variant, which is supposedly the worst of all.
1: Absolutely. You know, they're changing their minds because the situation is changing. And, you know, I think if we look back, particularly around AstraZeneca and the vaccine rollout, there there aren't a lot of things that, that honestly, I would have done differently Um it's it, it just it's understandably confusing for people. But, you know, I, I really think, uh, you know, throughout this pandemic that it really should be inspiring people with confidence that, that things are actually changing on a day to day basis based on on new information. I think that's a good thing.
0: Well, yeah, as, as he explained to me, he says the, the, the doctors aren't changing the mind. The, the variant is changing. That's, that's what's going on here. That's, that seems to be the problem. And there are studies going on, aren't there, Doctor? I know uh, the, the decision here was based on some information they're getting from, uh, from Germany right now with the rollout they've had, and they started a lot sooner than we did. And there's also, I guess, a study going on in the U.K. about this as well. So there's scientific data to back this up.
1: Absolutely. You know, there, there's two things that we're using. There's scientific data state studies that are being done and then there's also just the experience of other countries and, and as we've seen in the UK that are a little bit ahead of us with respect to the Delta variant you know they've got pretty good vaccination coverage not as good as ours but they're seeing a, a pretty significant increase in cases again after a decrease and, and after opening up and and i think it, we're fortunate in canada that throughout this pandemic we've been able to look to other jurisdictions who are a little ahead of us and say you know we don't want to go there and and we're making decisions accordingly so you know it's 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 the right decision to make and and you know as i'm sure we'll get to shortly the most important thing is for everybody to get a vaccine the second one is important, but you can only get the second one once you've got the first one. And that's
0: the critical element here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and as they say, had, had these things morphed and the, these variants, occurred, and they didn't tell us about it and say, well, by the way, it looks like AstraZeneca is not as effective, there would have been a hue and cry about that, too. This is really, I guess, for the protection of, of people that, that are trying to get that second shot at this stage.
1: That's right. And, and you know, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine is still pretty protective, particularly against hospitalization and death. So, you know, if you've got that vaccine, I wouldn't be worried, you know, just get the next one, the mRNA vaccine. And I think especially for people who are concerned, you got to remember that Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, a lot of other health, you know, uh, John Tory, many others um, got the AstraZeneca vaccine as their first dose. And so, you know, People shouldn't be feeling left behind. It's understandable that they'd be worried, but there are a lot of people in some pretty significant positions that have a great interest in making sure that people who got the first dose of AstraZeneca are well taken care of. So I, well, I wouldn't worry.
0: Including a lot of frontline workers, though. I mean, they were the first in line, and uh, let's face it, it was AZ that was available then.
1: That's right. Many, many did. But, I mean, many, many frontline workers did get Pfizer or Moderna as well, but, you know, it, it's a real mix. The AstraZeneca went out in the pharmacies first, if you recall. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of people, you know, that were in high-risk groups initially that got that vaccine.
0: Before I get to the hotspots, there's one other element to this, too, because we had a story here in the Hamilton area uh, that just surfaced on our news this morning, doctor, and it had to do with a side effect from Moderna. One gentleman who's a teacher here in the area uh, was hospitalized with with what they called an inflammation of the lining around the heart. And apparently there have been other situations like this as well. Should we be concerned about this?
1: Um, You know, myocarditis, which is, or pericarditis, inflammation around the heart, is something that we've seen with both of the mRNA vaccines, um, particularly in, in, in certain groups of people, younger people and men. But it is a very rare I- event, and, and I think it's important to recognize that unlike the the uh, Vipid or the blood clots that were seen very rarely, but, but with AstraZeneca, these are generally less severe. So, yes, some people get hospitalized, but, you know, we've had two and a half billion doses Of these vaccines around the world and we have seen this myocarditis but for the most part it hasn't been severe so I think there's no question that you know it's something to think about uh it's one of the legitimate concerns as opposed to some of the other ones that are really you know conspiracy theories but it it should not prevent people whether you're a kid or an adult from getting Moderna or Pfizer vaccines.
0: Is it not true, though, doctor, that just about any vaccine we get, whether it's this or a flu shot, even uh, there always is the risk of of an adverse reaction? I mean, depending on the individual.
1: Yeah, those are certainly considerations and and they are studied. And so, you know, when they're studied uh, at pretty large scale, you know, tens of thousands, uh, even up to hundreds of thousands of people, sometimes we don't see these effects. It's it's only really because literally the entire planet is getting vaccinated at the same time that we're seeing some of these very, very rare side effects. So, you know, it it is certainly true that that it is possible that these happen. We're we're giving you something that is novel. It's stimulating your immune response. And, and, uh, you know, it's not unexpected, but we have great systems, not only in Canada, but elsewhere in the world for detecting these. And we're all very very aware of it and so i don't think we're going to be missing anything so people can have confidence
0: in that okay let's uh, let's move over to the hot spot issue as we mentioned the new list came out yesterday hamilton is included in this uh it, as, as one doctor explained to us earlier this week dr Pack, it's one of these things where this is a race they say between the delta variant and the vaccination rates that are going on right now uh the, the fact that these areas have been identified there were a few more than besides hamilton that were identified in this what does this mean now to the vaccination program how do we move forward here
1: So, you know, if if there's a race between the variant and and the vaccine, you know, even four weeks ago, but certainly before that, we we needed to go into lockdown because we were not going to win this race. However, where we are right now, we actually can vaccinate our way uh, out of this out of this pandemic. And so, um, you know, we can win that race. The fact that, you know, Hamilton, other regions are declared hotspots means that people will be able to get their second doses earlier. And the real reason for that is because we have enough vaccine to give people. You know, I've been to a number of vaccine clinics just in the past couple of days, either with my children or elderly relatives, or, you know, it's part of my responsibilities um, in the pandemic response. And, and, you know, many of them are full and there's lineups and some of them, there's a, a great deal of space. So, I think people really just need to, especially those first-dose people, but second-dose as well, you need to book yourself an appointment, or if there's a pop-up in your area, you just need to decide to spend the day and and get your shot.
0: Can we anticipate, and I'm trying to compare this to what happened in Toronto, because they were initially one of the hotspot areas, uh, that there will be more of those pop-up clinics? In other words, they're going to try to create more access for people to try to get these shots as as quickly as possible?
1: Yeah. You know, every region is going to be different, and, and when they get more vaccine, you got two options. Make more sites... Or you know, put more people into each one of these sites, um, and so you know, we're we're trying to have both access to as many people as possible, as well as to reach out to people who might have problems with access and so those things are all going on at the same time and and every health unit local public health unit is, is working their hardest to make sure to get as much access as possible to their uh, constituents
0: now in a situation like that where there is a hot spot and again i'll, I'll ask you to reference the toronto situation because we're just learning about it here in the hamilton area now and by the way we should mention to our listeners uh in hamilton uh, it doesn't come into effect actually until wednesday of next week you can't call today uh, i guess they have to switch some things around with the, their websites and things like that but anyway uh in a circumstance like that uh do we move as quickly as we can is it is it everybody who's going to be included in this uh depending on no no, no barriers about demographic or anything else it's really when you got the last shot isn't it
1: that's right it's when it's when you got the last shot and as well as people can certainly you know recognize that if you're a high-risk person and you haven't gotten your second shot which you know hopefully those people are few and far between that you'll you'll seek it out immediately but right now we're, we're simplifying things just you know when you got your last dose you're either being sent an invitation by the system where you got your first dose, or you you know go on the provincial website and and book it when it's available next week.
0: Now, when we talk about that uh, time frame between first and second doses, as you recall. Uh there was a lot of consternation about that when the government decided, well, the four weeks that was recommended by Pfizer and, and Moderna and AstraZeneca in the early stages should really be, well, they extended it. And we are assuming it, might, it probably had a lot to do with supply. Now that there's a rush and now that there seems to be a lot of vaccine available right now, uh, I know they've they've shut that down to about eight weeks as opposed to the 12 weeks. Uh, do you see it being shortened even further, maybe closer to that one month that they initially talked about? Yeah,
1: it might be. It just really depends on our, our supply and our task to get it into arms. Um, you know, it, it definitely was the right decision to extend it out. And there is some reasonable evidence, some pretty good evidence that, you know, spacing it out a little more actually is somewhat helpful for, for immunity. Um, but right now, with this race between the variant and the vaccine, we really need to get that second dose in arms because Delta is different. We, you know, it's, it's an, an unusual finding, but it's, it's very clear that one dose is, is, you know, quite protective, but actually a second dose you know adds a good you know 80 percent onto that 80 percent difference onto that so it is really important to get that second dose
0: let me ask you about that that's an interesting point you just raised about the the time frame again between the two doses why why that what's happening in the body to to make it more effective if we do wait that, that eight weeks as opposed to four so you know
1: immunology vaccinology is, is pretty darn complex so I can't give you the exact mechanism, but general principle is that you know you're priming your body with something. You're giving your your body a, a something to look at in terms of an immune response. And when you give them something, your body something to look at. Pretty quickly, you know, after that, you know, it, it's still working on the first the first part of that. And if you spread it out a little bit, you've got these memory cells and uh, in your immune system, and those are just primed in a better way, it seems, when there's a little bit more distance between uh, the shots so that, that's kind of the mechanism by which it works but the you know the details still elude us and we really don't know um whether you know two doses are going to be enough or or we we may need another one at some point
0: another booster in a yearly basis i mean i guess that's to be determined as we as we yeah. roll along here i've i've seen some people actually commenting on social media doctor that say well you know i know so and so and they got the second shot it could have been moderna could have been anything and boy they were really crappy for a couple of days i don't think i want to go through that so i may just pass on that uh what's your advice to them
1: no, I, I would definitely say not to do that. I think with, you know, different people have different experiences. So generally, the AstraZeneca one, the first one is a little bit more of a punch and the second one a little bit less. The Pfizer one, you know, it and Moderna one, it seems that they're more or less the same or maybe a little bit worse. Um, symptoms the second time. I personally got mine and didn't even notice it the second time. To be honest, I got my daughter uh, uh, her second vaccine yesterday, and she's a feel- feeling a little under the weather today, but still in virtual school. So, you know, for most people, it's nothing you're even going to be noticing. And, and you know, if you do, it's going to be something really, really mild. So I, I would definitely not hesitate. But, you know, on an individual level, the most important thing you can do if you got your first shot, number one, is make sure everybody in your family or friends gets their first shot and the second thing is to go get your second shot.
0: Is it true that that if you do have some adverse effects and, and not severe, but I mean, you know, feeling miserable for a couple of days, uh, that may indicate that you're building up an even stronger defense?
1: Absolutely. That's that's what I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say stronger, but I texted my daughter this morning. You know, that means the vaccine is working. That's that's literally what you tell people and it and it is true. That that is your your body responding to to the vaccine so it is a good thing and if you frame it in that way hopefully people are able to deal with it a little bit easier
0: well and the other side of that coin i guess doctor is uh, if, if you're concerned about a few adverse effects about the second shot uh, compare that to the people that are you know dealing with the the, the virus right now and uh, we know hospitalizations are up in the uk uh, they're afraid the deaths are going to go up again i mean we're kind of in, in one circumstance right back to square one if you don't get vaccinated this is a pretty deadly virus and a pretty deadly variant that we're dealing with
1: that's right. You know, it, it, the hospitalizations and deaths associated with it are, are, are you know, significantly more with the Delta variant than with the Alpha variant than the UK one. And those were significantly more than the original COVID classic or the original COVID. So, you know, it is more worrisome. And, and even for those people who unfortunately are not concerned at all about getting COVID themselves, the reality is if we want to get back to normal, any semblance of normal, we've got to get to closer to 90%. You know, with with the previous... Um, variants or the original we thought that 70 percent 75 percent was going to be good enough but it isn't going to be good enough with these new variants we need to get a much higher level of herd immunity a much higher proportion of the population vaccinated so everyone has to do their part
0: on that positive note and that very strong message uh, we have to wrap it up we're just about out of time dr barry Pecus. Uh, doctor as always thanks so much uh, stay well and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon
1: great thank you have a great day
0: you too take care <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you've heard, and uh, it's causing a great deal of consternation, a lot of activity on social media, too. The evidence has now changed, and there's new advice uh, being given on what Canadian second dose of the vaccine should be. It's the latest turnaround from the National Advisory Council on Immunization called NACI. Uh, Dave Woodward from Global News has some details.
1: The new evidence led NAZI to advise Canadians to not get AstraZeneca as a second
2: dose.
3: An mRNA vaccine should now be offered as the second dose for individuals who received a first dose of AstraZeneca.
2: Canada's chief public health officer,
1: Dr. Theresa Tam, says the evidence shows that mixing the two types of vaccine can give a person a better immune response. She says if you did get AstraZeneca for both doses, don't worry, you're still protected.
3: Rest assured that the vaccine they receive provides good protection against
0: infection and very good protection against severe disease and hospitalization. Dave Woodard at Global News. Well, here's the problem. Uh, there could be other side effects, too. Uh, this interesting story, sidebar story, this was released yesterday, uh, that, uh, as we know, Broadway in New York is going to be reopening come September, and uh, one of the first uh, shows that they've decided to come back was going to be Bruce Springsteen. Of course, he, he won a Tony Award for his one-man show uh, last, well, before the pandemic started, of course, and he says he's going to revive the show, bring it back again, you know, and obviously that's going to be great. But the theater in which the show is going to be happening announced that uh, Canadians who had the Astros' vaccine will not be allowed in the theater they can't see the show and the rationale for that is because the Center for Disease Control and the FDA never did give a thumbs up to AstraZeneca in the United States so therefore it's not officially recognized it's rather bizarre so what's going on here i want to bring a good friend Dr. Rodney Rody into the conversation Dr. Rody is a professor and chair of the clinical laboratory science program at uh, the College of Health Professions at Texas State University Uh, doctor great to talk with you again hope you're doing well these days
3: Good morning, Bill. Nice to talk to you as well.
0: Let's talk a little bit about AstraZeneca. And and it's it's been controversial from the get-go, the concerns about possible blood clotting and some tragic situations we saw. We're told that the chances are slim and none about this, but the FDA never did uh, give the okay to that. What's what's the story behind that, doctor?
3: Yeah, that's that's kind of the crux of the matter, isn't it? It's kind of a, a story that's been ongoing really for months and months now, if you look back to when the vaccines first started being approved. And... To my knowledge, and from what I've gathered this morning and, and yesterday, looking at the different vaccines from from some other interviews, is that the FDA is still concerned with that. You know, it's it's actually not a, a massive risk. It's one in depending on the literature you look at, one in hundred thousand to one in two hundred and fifty thousand chance of getting a blood clot. But whether that is the primary reason or just the the bubbling of concern around that has kept the FDA from going ahead and approving the AstraZeneca vaccine has continued to be a, a problem, I guess, when you start looking at what's happening with respect to now hearing this about the Bruce Springsteen concert and so forth. So, you know, one of my, one of my ongoing uh, concerns, and I think a lot of us that are dealing with this issue right now is that it's real time data. And it's just so unfortunate bill that, You know, three months ago, what you may have heard about uh, getting Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson versus AstraZeneca has been, you know, morphing and changing over time. And it's I think I think countries are going to have to really sit down and think about how this is affecting people's livelihoods, whether it's simply something like attending a uh, concert or flying or anything else that they're going to have to look at, because it's just not going to be be a fair stance when you aren't allowing a group of people who are fully vaccinated with the astrazeneca vaccine from doing certain things so i hope the u.s government and others uh, will look at that closely and and change their stance on that I, i don't know if that's just the concert goers i haven't been able to find if it's just the the organizers of the concert or if it's actually you know, being pushed that way through the U.S. government. And I'm not sure if you guys have heard or found any other evidence that it's a only
0: only speculation at this point, Doctor. But yeah. it, it does beg the question, doesn't it? Uh, and it, it's first of all, it's, it's good to know that at least the FDA is still looking into this. They just haven't said no. You can't use this, right? But and, and I'm getting the sense from the the release that we got from uh, from, the, from the folks on Broadway is that it, their decision was not based on whether or not they think AZ is effective. They're simply saying it's not been okay by FDA by the Federal Drug Administration. So we don't recognize it, but th- it does raise the question of: Well, what are the ramifications to that? Does that mean U.S. Airlines won't recognize it? In other right. words, uh, I uh, now I'm, I'm a, I got Pfizer, so I do. But my wife got both doses of AstraZeneca, and as as late as two weeks ago, uh, our agencies up here were saying, "Get that second dose, get AstraZeneca; it's fine." And now they've they've reversed that, and now a lot of people are saying, "Well, wait a second, uh, what what are the what are the ramifications? Uh, am I going to be?" Right. Yeah, because there's so many different aspects tied into this doctor as you're you're aware uh the biden administration and the canadian government have begun negotiations about opening the border up again because of of the way that the vaccination rate has gone in both countries uh but are canadians going to be denied access entrance into the united states because they have AstraZeneca i I, i'm only speculating but i mean if it's not recognized by the fda i hope not not too
3: yeah Yeah, i hope not i really you know again this is my own personal opinion but i really hope not. i hope the governments can sit down, and, and not just the U.S. and Canada, but obviously this has far-reaching effects elsewhere. I just can't imagine uh, the U.S. not looking at this closely and being more accepting of the AstraZeneca vaccine if you've gotten both doses, or if you've gotten a single dose and then you take the second mixed dose, which is now showing that evidence is a little better. We didn't know that a month ago, and so I, I don't. I really hope that they look at that and understand that with both doses of AstraZeneca as As uh, your um, advisor, Dr. Tam, talked about, it's still a very good uh, response. It's still going to keep people from having severe illness, severe hospitalization, or or even mortality. So AstraZeneca has shown that it's working. It's just not quite as efficacious as, as the Pfizer and the Moderna. So I hope this is a blip on the radar and it is a little concerning that you know it's it's Broadway doing this because that gets all over the map. Obviously, as, you're, yeah. <laughs> as we're talking about this today, but it does set a little precedent, and that's worrisome. That I mean, for sure, you know the the airline question is concerning to me because that's something I think we're all interested in. I want to I want to travel abroad in the coming year uh, if I'm able, and it'll be it'll be problematic for everybody if that that comes to pass that there's you know preferred vaccines over the others
0: it will probably help
3: what a mess right yeah,
0: exactly it's a it- mess it would probably be helpful if the FDA was a little more clear as to why they're holding off on this. Uh, because my impression, and I've, I've gone through all this data, but it's a lot, actually, a number of the conversations you and I have had over the last, uh, few months as well. Uh, and I don't ever get the sense that they didn't think it was an effective vaccine. I don't think that's in question. Uh, they were concerned about the side effects. Or s- that's what I'm right. surmising from what I've read. Uh, but I, if, if that's the case, then I can't understand why people would say, well, we're going to deny entrance. I mean, the vaccine is working on that individual that got AstraZeneca. Uh, they're exactly. just concerned about how that might be built. So I, I think there has to be a, a reassessment of exactly what's going on. But it does raise the question about what's going to happen, as you say, on a global basis as we start to open up again. Uh, I The numbers I saw on AstraZeneca, Doctor, I said about 85 to 87% effective, and Pfizer's about 95%. Moderna, very similar to that, too. So they're, they're in the same ballpark. It's not as if one's that much worse than the other.
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. And even looking at Johnson & Johnson, which is even a little less effective than AstraZeneca when you look at the overall numbers. So it really comes down to that FDA approval based on, you know, if you're vaccinated, it shouldn't really matter, in my opinion, because it's just about the side effects. If that's what the FDA is worried about, that's one statement that they could come out with pretty quickly is that we're concerned about the possible adverse effects, even though minor, and we're going to continue to look at that before we approve it, but we will accept it, for example, for these types of instances, because if you show both doses or a mixed dose and you're 80 to 90% covered, then you should be fine. You're as good as anybody else. So you know, I'm really hoping that the FDA and others will sit down and, and kind of come out with a statement in the next week or so, because obviously, I mean, this is blown up and, and it's unfortunate because you you want people to be focused on getting the vaccine, <laughs> not on worrying about which one. So we'll see what happens in the coming days. Again, just another ongoing headache with, um, it, it's a, it, pardon the pun, it's kind of a side effect of rushing you know these vaccines out which we loved it's protecting people it's saving lives but we are seeing this kind of real-time evidence changing and so sometimes these stances come out and it makes agencies and others look a little uh i don't want to say silly but but it, it just makes it makes it awkward when you don't know all this information up front so i feel i feel for them <laughs> in the sense of how this is i'm carrying because usually in science you want to know all the, the data as it's release but in this case they're following it as they go so it's kind of a unfortunate
0: event but if i recall doctor there was a bit of a delay with the release of johnson and johnson for that same reason the Mm -hmm. fda had some concerns and they they, it was only five or six weeks i think it was but uh they they were a little apprehensive about that and they they finally gave it the thumbs up and that seems to be okay uh so I, i suppose this happens but uh it's interesting to note though that i mean since the fda has never approved that nobody in the united states has received astrazeneca is that correct
3: that's cor- To my understanding, that's correct.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, and I think they've produced it in the United States. I believe one of the, the, the locations in, in the United States is actually producing it. But I guess that's obviously going to be part of the stuff that uh, the, the United States is going to be sending off to, to other parts of the mm-hmm. world now to try to get the vaccine program in. Uh, that's right. It's it's kind of a, a frustrating situation, I guess, for all of us here with this lack of information. But that's one of the other concerns that I had too, and I'm glad you raised this. Uh, even in the 24 hours or so since the the Canadian authorities have announced this, uh, I'm looking at some of the posts on social media, and I'm thinking this this is this is going to create some vaccine hesitancy again. People saying, "I'm afraid I, I may not want to get that second shot now because I don't know what to do."
3: Yeah, it's a it's it's never a good thing when you see this type of of uh firestorm kind of start on social media because that's that's the obviously worry for us who are already struggling to push the vaccine i mean even in the u.s as we've talked about it's dropped down a little bit fortunately we had two million doses get into arms yesterday which is our best day since early may so that's good i don't know if that's i don't know if that's because of the worry about delta variant it's kind of i think ramped up some concern again or what but something drove it up yesterday but i hope that continues but this You know, these types of things, you know, it's just it's so confusing to people who aren't staying on top of this. And so you're right. I mean, they may stop and say, well, I'm just going to wait. I need to talk to somebody. I need to see what's going on here before I get that second dose or even start. And so that's always my concern. That's the biggest concern over stuff like this. So, you know, let's hope that the FDA and the U.S. government understands the the critical importance on messaging and they sit down and come out with a statement that makes sense to everybody
0: doctor uh, you've seen a lot of the criticism too from people on social media and other people that are just voicing their displeasure here about you know authorities changing their mind and whether it was you know dr fauci uh, in, in the states or, or the officials dr tam and, and the others up here uh this you know, well, you told us one thing one day and a month later you're telling us something else right. uh, maybe explain to our listeners about uh, you know dealing with covid 19 and and the fact that for instance when all of these medications and all these vaccines were developed it was under the guise of that first virus that was the COVID that that it's morphed twice three times now that we know uh in situations like this how how does that change the virus and and does it actually get to the point where they have to reconsider the efficacy of the vaccine against for instance in this case the Delta uh, virus
3: yeah it's a great point and it's it's been another story I've been you know, kind of dealing with for the past week or so. You've probably seen that blowing up a little bit around the the world. But certainly the Delta variant, you know, it's 90% of the main dominant strain now in the U.K. And in the U.S., we're watching it. It was about 6% last week, and it's already doubled to about 12% this week. So we're worried most experts, most virology experts that are following that and doing the, the ongoing surveillance, I believe it's going to start doubling in the U.S. as well. So right now, right now, the vaccine's, still look like they're fine for this delta variant, but it's way more transmissible. Some are saying you know forty percent more transmissible than the than the alpha which was the original uh, B117 UK variant. So as we've talked about on the show bill, I mean, viruses do this. This is not surprising from the viruses standpoint. They're going to change and mutate. that the headache is that if you could get enough people vaccinated quickly, and not just in the US and Canada, but globally, so that you drive down the what you kind of call the naive population, those who are not immunized. If you have pockets of people, and we have them, that are not vaccinated or have not had the natural disease, then that virus is going to naturally select for those individuals. So it's constantly mutating and changing in the environment, looking for that kind of weakened immune system or absent immune system, but if you can get, this is why you keep hearing that term, if you can get 70, 80, 90% of people vaccinated, you actually may stop some of these variants from um, becoming dominant, and that would slow down everything. But but we can't seem to get that done, you know, whether you're talking about hesitancy in the USA or just vaccine inequity in other countries. So it it is a big concern and something that we have to kind of stay focused on. And not only for the vaccine effectiveness, but it affects everything bill i mean if vax, if if the virus continues to change and it will then we also have to keep an eye on testing you know so that's my world diagnostics if it changes yeah. enough then you start worrying about is the test picking up the way it's supposed to you also worry about medications like the different monoclonal antibodies and and other things that they're looking at they're working on the they're calling it the covid you know pill like an antiviral like they use for flu like tamiflu they've been working on that and, I mean, if it changes enough over the nine months that they're developing things, you, know, you could end up with a moderately useful drug or a really good drug or one that's not good. <laughs> so it has implications for companies and profits and, I mean, everything. And so it's, you know, again, the virus doesn't care. It's going to do what it's going to do. And, and for the public that's listening – you know, that's the headache with the viruses. They're the fastest replicating organism that we know to mankind. I mean, they are just so quick. They're so adaptive. Unfortunately, they're diabolically brilliant. And they just continue to change while we're, you know, three steps behind them sometimes. And so I think we've done a good job. I mean, it's been this vaccine, the mRNA vaccines were monumental in what we've done in the past decade or two. But we still haven't learned how to keep up with a virus. Uh, that, that is a challenge going forward. They're so diabolically fast in how they adapt.
0: I don't want to talk about getting into lockdowns again. God help us. I don't want, but, no, you know,
3: me either, Bill.
0: But, <laughs> either. but, uh, but, but, With the way this is morphed, and you were one of the first doctors I talked to when the vaccines were announced late last year, doctor, that said, you know, we may have to consider there may be boosters on an annual basis and things like that. The way this has morphed and and turned into, well, now the Delta variant, uh, are we moving closer and closer to that inevitability that uh, that this is going to be with us for God knows how long and we're just probably going to have to be on guard and and have these sort of vaccines on a regular basis?
3: Yeah. And, you know, again, unless I am totally surprised by what's going on, I am not going to be um, I'm not going to be surprised that it we go to some type of annual or, or biannual booster vaccination for this. I mean, for a virus to be so infiltrated throughout the globe in all sorts of people, the other headache about this bill, I read a great review article yesterday about this. And this is my background. Things like influenza, things like coronavirus, things like rabies. That have animal reservoirs, right? So this virus mm-hmm. can hang out. It appears, whether it's in bats or uh, certain types of raccoon dogs, or when you have those types of situations, the virus can go kind of recede back into wildlife. Uh, even if you tamp it down in the human population, it's always kind of there, and so you do worry about you know kind of these outbreaks that pop up as the virus changes. So. I would be very surprised if it just goes away this time. I think we're going to be dealing with, it's called an endemic, where it just kind of becomes low-level, kind of a slow burn. But that's not to scare everybody. I mean, that's influenza, um, and we've all kind of learned to live with that. We do have years that it it sneaks up on us, and it changes enough that you have to be a little more careful, get vaccinated, and, and kind of watch what's going on. And I I suspect we're going to be dealing with coronavirus in that sense as we move forward that we're probably going to have an endemic situation.
0: Uh, Well, it's not a (laughs) lot. I'm ready to come
3: to Canada, my man.
0: We're on the side of caution. Mm. Uh, Doctor, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You too. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Dr. Rodney Rohde, of course, from Texas State University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get back into the the issue of long-term care facilities here in the province of Ontario. This has been an ongoing problem. Well, it's been an ongoing problem for years, but it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. And we saw that happening last year with some of the horrific stories that we heard. There have been a number of reports, some government sponsored, some independent reports, that have talked about the tragic circumstances in long-term care facilities. Uh, One which said that uh, actually, some of the people, uh, the residents who died in long term care facilities over the course of the pandemic actually died of dehydration. And one of them was, of course, and heat related illnesses. Because don't forget, they were in lockdown. They were not allowed out of their rooms, not allowed out of their building. And the problem is, most of them didn't have air conditioning. So, in answer to that, The Premier was on our show, of course, uh, not too long after that report came out, uh, and seemed quite sincere in his concern about this. And on July 15th of last year, this is what the Premier said. This is something that should have been done many years ago. And with thousands of new and redeveloped beds on the way, we're going to mandate air conditioning for all new long-term care projects and redevelopments. I am 100% committed to seeing this through. No longer will the seniors and the staff in our long-term care homes have to suffer through the summer heat. Okay, that was then, uh, and this is now. Uh, since that time, the government has awarded 36 construction contracts for brand new LTC facilities and 44 contracts to refurbish existing ones, but in all of them, there is no requirement to include cooling systems throughout the building. So, what about that, pla- that, ve- that, that pledge? What, what about the commitment to long-term care residents? It's not happening to the degree that it should. I want to bring uh, our next guest in to talk about this. Dr. Amita Raria is a uh, palliative care physician. He's also co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the program today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill.
0: This latest study that talks about where we are in in situations like this I, I find very disturbing. What's your read on this? Well, I'm disturbed just like
2: you, and it's exactly as you mentioned, Bill. I mean, I'm wondering what will it take for the province and, you know, the operators of long-term care homes to step up to make sure that these facilities are safe for, you know, our seniors and, you know, once again I wanted to add for everyone who's listening that, you know, older adults are more susceptible to dehydration and also on top of that these uh, unfortunately are not people who are healthy older adults who can often walk around or get water by themselves, so they're dependent on having enough staff in these long-term care homes to make sure that, you know who who have enough time to feed them and hydrate them and, you know, make sure they're not getting dehydrated.
0: But that that, that staffing level doesn't exist now in most of these facilities, doctor.
2: Yeah, I mean that's absolutely the case. I mean, you know, we we you know, we're already understaffed even before the COVID-19 pandemic and then with the pandemic people have actually Left long-term care homes on mass, and I don't blame frontline staff in that situation because they were honestly left, you know, left to die themselves. They weren't provided proper PPE. Uh, I know of many people actually who were in food bank lines and couldn't pay their rent bills in spite of working double and triple shifts. So people have left for you know safer jobs, or in fact have just left you know long-term care altogether. And our staffing levels are decimated in many long-term care homes.
0: And and there's a commitment here by the government. We, you heard the clip that we played of last July from. Uh, from the Premier himself. Uh, and subsequent to that, I mean, we've had other discussions. I've, I've tried to get a hold of the, the Minister for Long-Term Care, Marilee Fullerton. She, uh, it's pretty hard to get her in front of a microphone anywhere these days uh, because of some of the concerns that are being raised and, and some of the flip-flops that are going on. But the excuse we got from the spokesman at the time was, well, you know, these are old, old buildings. It's going to take a while to retrofit them, and we're doing the best we possibly can in situations like this. Uh, but the, the numbers here tell a different story. I mean, 40% of these facilities don't have what the, pro- the premier had committed to. Uh, and, and what they have done, as you know, is an interim mover, they said, well, we have cooling stations within some of those, which is usually what the dining room and maybe a, a common area on the, on the floor. But what do you do for the people that are bedridden, Doctor, if they can't get out of their rooms? Do you, do you move all the beds to the common area?
2: Yeah, so uh, of course, that's absolutely not possible. Uh, many people in these long-term care homes uh, may not be able to make it to the cooling area. And of course, at nighttime, uh, everybody should be in their own room. You know, that, that would be what we would expect. So I, I don't know why after we were promised that this would be rapidly dealt with last summer. And as you mentioned, I mean, many people, you know, didn't just die from COVID-19. There were people who died from dehydration in long-term care homes last year. Dehydration. So I don't know why this has not been fixed, uh, you know, even, you know, heading into
0: the summer now. Maybe we should just remind our listeners: uh, when you and I get thirsty and, and say, "Boy, I could use a, a drink of water right now," that that is really the, one of the first signs of dehydration, isn't it? Your body's saying, you know, I, it's, it's not just that your throat might be a little dry; the body is craving that that liquid. Uh, and we have heard stories as as you've told us uh, and other po- people, of course, both uh, with doctors for justice and long term care of of some residents that have waited hours for for assistance to just to get a drink of water because the, at that time the families weren't allowed in and there wasn't enough staff to look after everybody
2: yeah so from a medical perspective i can say for someone who's younger or middle-aged uh thirst might not necessarily be a sign of dehydration but our bodies. Uh, physiology changes as we get older. So definitely for somebody in their 80s or 90s, if they're feeling quite thirsty, that could be a sign that they're mildly dehydrated. And more important for me, uh, you know, when I see people who live in long-term care homes, uh, these are often people who have dementia and people who are already very sick, people who simply can't just walk down to their kitchen and get a glass of water. They're fully dependent on other people monitoring their hydration status taking the time to gently feed them and hydrate them. Many of them actually may have swallowing difficulties, so it might not just be that they can gulp down a glass of water, but they might need to be very gently sort of hydrated and take sips slowly. And it might even take half an hour or an hour. So it takes time, it takes patience, and it takes skill. And of course, when you're working on the front lines of these long-term care homes, wearing full PPE, and you're stretched to the max, you don't know the residents. I mean, this is a setup for problems. And unfortunately, once again, it should have been fixed.
0: Well, and we're getting around to staffing levels, which is an ongoing problem that you and I have talked about for months and months here. Uh, and that, by the way, was one of the partial solutions that the, the Ministry of Long-Term Care gave for these facilities that don't have uh, any cooling systems in the, in the bedrooms themselves. Uh, what they said in, in, an answer to that was well we're going to send staff in to monitor the temperature in those rooms who's going to have time to do that they don't even have time to give these people drinks of water are they going to hire an extra person who's going to be the monitor for for temperatures it it, it sounds like a wonderful idea but how practical is it doctor?
2: I don't think it's practical at all it doesn't make any sense once again and it's exactly as you said I mean the staff are stretched just trying to make sure people are fed and hydrated, people get their bath, people get to the, you know, like, you know, the bathroom on time. I can share with you just a few weeks ago, I was talking to a PSW working in a for-profit long-term care home who mentioned that she had started her shift at 6 a.m. She was still there at um, 7 or 8 p.m. and was going to stay extra until 10 or 11 at night because if she didn't stay, there would be two or three residents who would not get a shower until you know, a couple of weeks after because there was no one there to help out. So I think this is a completely unreasonable expectation. And, uh, you know, it goes alongside with this discussion about staffing, which is so important, where, of course, we need to make these facilities more home-like. They need to be safe. And, of course, they need to have air conditioning uh, to prevent or reduce the chance of heat-related mortality. But also, there needs to be enough staff to care for the residents.
0: I want to go back to the, the other thing that I find just as troubling, if not more so, too, is the fact that since the the Premier made that announcement last July, uh, we, we talked about this just before you came on here, the 36 uh, new LTC facilities that are being constructed and uh, 44 uh, refurbishings of, of a number of these facilities. And in none of those contracts, does it talk about cooling systems, even though the Premier had vowed that. And what this does, uh, just to back up, I don't want to get too deep into this, is it, there's, there's our qualifications, there our are standards, there are parameters that are set up those haven't been updated for years. You would have thought that was the first step this government would have taken to ensure this happened. This is not a cost the government necessarily needs uh, to incur. It's the people that are building the facilities, and they basically have been told you don't have to because it's not there. Yeah,
2: so I mean, we, we I, I think we're kind of asking ourselves the same question here, bill. I mean we're we're wondering what will it take for the government to step up and actually make the fundamental and drastic changes that are needed in our long-term care system. I mean, I will add that, you know, a lot of the funding from what I'm aware to sort of fix the air conditioning issue is coming out of public taxpayer dollars. So, for example, uh, you know, taxpayers have already spent $61.4 million to move up the air conditioning uh, from 42%. So last year it was 42% of long-term care homes that were fully air conditioned and it moved up to 60%. Leaving 40 percent, of course, without that full air conditioning, including you know the you know the rooms. Now, what I wonder about this is that actually, uh, you know, from a taxpayer accountability perspective, w- which homes actually did not furnish their own air conditioning and did not invest in air conditioning? We don't know, and I think that's something that the public deserves to know, given that all long-term care homes, regardless of the ownership model, whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit, uh, are subsidized through the taxpayer dollar.
0: Well, the story of the Globe and Mail that talked about this yesterday made that point that uh, the spokesman said, uh, when, when faced with this idea that, hey, there's no requirement in the in the building uh, parameters here to do this, and they said, oh, yeah, but most of them are going to do it. Well, they wouldn't give any numbers. What's that mean? That they're going to do it anyway? How many, how many? Is it all of them? Is it 60% of them? We don't know. It's a, a, a statement like that that's, that does not give you much in the way of detail, it doesn't give you much in the way of reassurance, I think, either.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think this points to a fundamental problem in the entire long-term care sector where we don't have transparency, as I mentioned. Uh, we have a problem with inspections. Uh, we have regulations that are there. But uh, to be honest, I don't think they're the right type of regulations, as we've talked about. And they're not really looking at sort of the things that would improve quality of life for the residents and keep them safe. So this is just yet another example of a fundamental problem in the entire long-term care sector.
0: Well, and this goes back to something two years ago, just after the Ford government took office, where they actually cut back on inspections of these facilities. Uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to be in the dark night here, but the fact of the matter is, is a lot of the, uh, for-profit facilities are managed by boards of directors that have a number of people that are either former progressive conservatives or lobbyists for the progressive conservative party, uh, and it it begs the question: when when these things are not enforced, uh, is it because they're just saying, "Hey, back off, we're friends"? Uh, I, I, like, where where is is the dedication to the existing rules, let alone increasing those those rules and making them more effective?
2: Yep, And, and uh, I, I will remind everyone that's listening, just to add to that, um, Bill, is that, you know, it is the for-profit uh, operators and, you know, their powerful lobby that has fought for deregulation. So actually reducing the amount of oversight, reducing, you know, inspections, uh, decreasing staffing. I mean, this is something that the for-profit lobby has wanted. And, of course, it's completely against the public interest. It's, it's completely against trying to provide good and safe care, you know, for our seniors. And I think that, you know, with COVID-19, you know, we have to all rise up as a society to hold any elected politician accountable uh, for long-term care because of course we're all getting older and we're all heading in this direction. I mean across Canada our population is actually aging faster than ever. Many of us are going to have uh, people in long-term care facilities that we love very soon, parents or grandparents because I'll, I'll add one last point. 2021 this year is the year that baby boomers uh, turn 75 and that's the largest age cohort in our, in our society.
0: I was talking to somebody a couple of months ago, Doctor, that actually worked in daycare uh, and, and she was telling me that, it, it's just, and this is the, the juxtaposition here, she says for a licensed daycare, there are very strict regulations that must be adhered to or you lose your license. Uh, and they're pretty good about is saying, okay, you, you've, you're not in compliance, you've got like a week to do this or whatever. Why don't we have that same sort of situation with long-term care? In other words, we look after our youth that way, our little kids, but our seniors, not so much.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, they, you know, have this sort of act, which is uh, called, I believe, the Child Care and Early Years Act in Ontario, where it actually provides staffing ratios for uh, infants, uh, toddlers and young children. So, I mean, that's absolutely the opposite, unfortunately, of what we have in long term care, where it's completely, you know, there actually is no regulated staffing ratio at all. So commonly in long-term care homes, we have one nurse looking after 30 residents. It might go up to 60 or 90 at night. But really, there's no enforceable number as it is. And when we hear long-term care homes or the government saying that staffing is stable, to me, that's a completely useless statement because it doesn't actually tell you how many staff are there looking after the residents. And to go along with this, unfortunately, there's no standardized training that's required for staff working in long-term care homes. And what that means is that unfortunately, the care that you receive living in these long-term care homes depends on that chance encounter with someone who actually knows, you know, what they're doing and someone who has the time to help you out. And it shouldn't be like that.
0: And, and it comes down to standards and, and you know we could spend the next two hours i guess talking about some of the tragic stories we've heard as a result of that uh as you just mentioned the ratios tend to go up at nighttime, i guess because they figure well the residents are all sleeping well anybody who's worked in a facility and i've talked to a number of those staff members over the years has said that's that's not the case i mean they, there's there's a lot of work to be done through the night shift as well uh because of needs of, of some of the individual residents in places like this too and there has to be a recognition of this uh how much more is it going to take doctor i i, I know that's sounds like a rhetorical question but you know we've seen the deaths we've seen these three different reports now including the one for the Canadian military that that, and the the Premier has has said all the right things every time one of these reports come out we've got to do something about it but they haven't revised the building uh, code for these yet they haven't done the things that they're supposed to be doing they haven't increased staff levels Uh, wages are still a problem we're kind of right back where we were a year ago.
2: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one thing I, I do feel that although we might see politicians and governments, you know, with performative action, where, you know, they're making statements that sound good, but not actually taking action to help people uh, living in long term care homes, people live working in long term care homes, I do think that the public at large has has awoken and is really very well aware of what's going on in these long-term care facilities. For decades before, I think, because of the long-term care system, and also this is a little more complex, but because are also our you know governments underfund home care, a lot of people end up in these buildings, and it's easy to sort of just think about. Well, we don't really know what's going on behind these doors, you know, behind these walls, and society kind of sadly forgets about people. But that has changed, you know, with with COVID nineteen, where I think everyone is now. Aware Aware of long term care. I actually talk to people, my neighbors, friends, who are very worried about ending up in long term care homes or, you know, as their parents are aging, they're very worried that they will, you know, their parents will end up in one of these homes and not receive proper care. So uh, this has to be an issue uh, at the ballot box. This has to be an elections issue. And we really have to hold all of our political parties accountable to make sure that the changes are done so that our seniors finally get the life that they deserve.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Doctor, we have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, Pleasure to have you back on the program. Continue the great work that, uh, that you're doing, and we'll talk again soon.
2: Sounds good, Bill. Thank you.
0: Take care. Dr. Medaria, of course, uh, co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.